Welcome to our Nerd Roamer series on the Gnome Serum Run of 1925. For the rest of the episodes in this series, please see nerdroamer.com or find Nerd Roamer on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all your Nerd Roamer-related updates and news, find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Nerd Roamer. It's now very apparent to Dr. Welch that he is absolutely powerless against the forces of illness that are gathering at his doorstep. So Dr. Welch calls a meeting with the mayor of the town, who also happened to be the chief editor of the town's newspaper. So talk about involvement between the media and politicians in these tiny towns. Uh, you got to wear a lot of hats. So we got the chief editor of the newspaper slash mayor uh, in the mix now. So they put their heads together to discuss what to do. And first they decide to place the entire city on a strict month-long quarantine. Because now we're all familiar with the many nuances of the word quarantine and the, you know, there's a lockdown and there's a quarantine and there's contact tracing, all this stuff. I tried to find details on what the quarantine entailed and I could not, I, I looked for hours. I could not find anything uh, really concrete there. But in any case, they put the town on quarantine. It's really the only public health measure that they've got. And by all accounts, it was quite strict. Uh, And at this point, Dr. Welch starts scrambling to get his hands on the only thing that he knows is going to be able to save the children of his city, additional supply of this fresh antitoxin. So Dr. Welch sends a telegram. There is a telegraph uh, line connecting them to the outside world. Sends a telegram to public health officials in Alaska and Washington, D.C. in a plea for assistance. And he says, this is his telegram. An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of 1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. The number of cases was quickly swelling into the dozens. All of this that I'm talking about here is now occurring over like 24 or 36 hours. Welch is fearing that the immune systems of the Alaskan natives in the area will be really vulnerable to succumbing to the disease because it's not endemic to the area and they shouldn't have any sort of natural immunity to it. They definitely saw this play out just a few years earlier with the numerous influenza epidemics, obviously the 1918 influenza epidemic, pandemic. Uh, You have probably heard a little bit about this year, you know, people talking about that in comparison to coronavirus. But there were other influenza pandemics and epidemics that just ravaged the Alaska native population because they didn't have natural immunity to the influenza virus the way that um, people from other parts of the world do. Public health officials on the outside start scrambling to locate enough antitoxin to send to the children of Nome. The nearest supply of the 1 million units that he asked for would need to sail from the West Coast through Seattle before making its way to the Port of Seward, which we mentioned is ice-free year-round, and then come over the newly made Alaska Railway, before making its way overland to Nome. The journey would take weeks, and by the time that antitoxin reached Nome, it would be too late for many victims of the epidemic. Hearing about the crisis in Nome, Dr. J.B. Beeson, who was a surgeon at the Alaska Railroad Hospital in the new city of Anchorage, which had basically popped up solely for the purpose of supporting the construction of this new Alaska Railway just in the few years before the epidemic occurred, uh, J.B. Beeson the surgeon at this railroad hospital, started scouring his hospital to see if they had any diphtheria antitoxin, 
and he was actually able to locate about 300,000 units. This wasn't enough to completely cover Nome's needs, but it was enough to buy them some time while the full supply made its way from the West Coast. Now, all that remained was to figure out how to get that antitoxin from Anchorage to Nome as fast as possible. The first part was easy uh, because of this Alaska Railway that I was just talking about. Uh, under the direction of the Department of the Interior, the Alaska Railway had just been extended from Anchorage north to the interior of Alaska at the city of Nanana. Uh, President Warren G. Harding actually had driven the Golden Spike, completing the project just two years before this. So this is a very fresh railroad. The final bridge across the Nanana River had been a total feat of engineering. It was one of the longest bridges in the world at the time. But now they had to figure out how to get this antitoxin from the interior of Alaska. Nanana is kind of in between Fairbanks and Denali. Uh, from the interior of Alaska all the way to Nome on the coast of the Seward Peninsula. How to make that part of the journey was actually quite a point of contention. Fairbanks, Alaska was a home base for the budding bush plane industry. Planes had only been around for a couple decades, and their use in airmail, uh, especially in Alaska, was still kind of experimental and just developing. It was just one year prior that Carl Eilson, uh, after whom there's an Eilson Visitor Center in Denali National Park, that's one of the probably the most beautiful visitor center views of any national park in the world. Uh, Carl Eilson was the first bush pilot to complete uh, mail delivery in Alaska, and that had happened just a year before all of this occurred. A lot of officials were pushing really, really hard for the use of an airplane to deliver the antitoxin from Fairbanks to Nome. The thought being that it would be extremely efficient, it would be the fastest way of moving the antitoxin, and it would showcase this new technology in this budding industry. Unfortunately, most of the planes that they had available had water-cooled engines, which, you know, in Alaska in winter is going to be pretty rough. You're going to have issues with your uh, engine freezing up pretty bad. And a lot of them had been kind of winterized. Their planes were winterized. They weren't available to be functional right at that moment. The other point that was a little bit sketchy about using the planes to deliver the antitoxin is that for long-distance flights, a lot of the people flying across the Alaska interior had accomplished their flights with like series of like crash landings, basically. And so not only did you have this risk of injuring the crew out in the middle of nowhere in the winter, but you also worried about maybe destroying the antitoxin, uh, shattering the vials, that kind of thing. Scott Bone, the territorial governor of Alaska, listens to these arguments for using the planes. Some people got really, really wound up about wanting to use the planes. He opts to go with plan B instead, enlisting the toughest, most reliable means of delivering cargo in the Alaskan winter ever developed, the dog sled. <laughs> Alaskan natives, Russian fur traders, English explorers, all had used dog sleds in Alaska for generations. The 674-mile sled dog route between Nanana and Nome was supported by a series of roadhouses that were operated by the Northern Commercial Company, which was the American permutation of the Russian-American company uh, that had been sold to some American investors uh, when the United States government purchased Alaska. Uh, once the decision was made by Governor Bone to pursue a strategy of using a sled dog relay, the U.S. Postal Inspector began to compile a list of the best sled dog drivers and teams that he knew to complete this journey. Just to give you a sense of how rapid the response was to Dr. Welch's call for help, 
He sent his telegram to the public health agencies on January 22nd. By January 24th, the meetings were accomplished that determined that the sled dog teams would deliver the serum. So by that time, they had located the antitoxin in Anchorage and had determined that they would go with the sled dog plan. And by January 26th, the serum was on its way from Anchorage to Nome. Dr. Beeson of Anchorage Railroad Hospital packaged the serum carefully, tucked it into these glass vials with roughly 10,000 units each into a metal canister, and then wrapped that in a quilt. On the evening of January 27th, the train carrying the serum rolled into the Nanana Depot, and the first driver of the relay, Wild Bill Shannon, was waiting. Initially, they had planned to use one driver to take the antitoxin halfway, and then have another driver from Nome who'd come out, pick it up, and bring it to Nome from that point using just two drivers, but it was determined that this would not be fast enough. Uh, that journey from Nanana to Nome in typical conditions would take 30 days, which just seemed to be, you know, much longer than the town of Nome had. By the time 30 days rolled around, they could have seen quite a bit of death and suffering. So the goal was to use this team of relay drivers to accomplish the uh, serum relay in 15 days. Shooting for about two weeks was what they were going for. Wild Bill Shannon picks up this serum from the railway depot, wastes no time, straps the package to his sled, and heads west as fast as possible. Just to give you a sense of the conditions these guys were mushing their dogs in, uh, he was heading into a night, so he's starting at night because it's dark out just about all the time, heads into the night at negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit. He covers 50 miles for his leg. At this time, you know, like 30 miles was considered like a really pretty tough day of mushing. So 50 miles is his first leg. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty long night of mushing through the frigid cold. Uh, at that point, he hands the serum over to a sled driver named Dan Green. And over the coming days, not to read you a list of names, we'll talk about all the drivers at the end. Um, but over the next series of days, there are 17 sled drivers who move the serum in what amounts to averages of about 30-mile increments in temperatures that wind up getting as low as 62 degrees Fahrenheit below zero uh, and winds with gale force gusts up to 60 miles an hour. Okay, so at times the wind chills reach negative 85 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 65 Celsius. These sled dogs are such impressive athletes. Uh, when, the, when the conditions permitted, these teams of anywhere between 7 and 20 sled dogs would move at an astounding average pace, average pace of 9 to 10 miles per hour, which is essentially averaging a 6-minute mile through snow, cold, and wind over, you know, 30 to 50 miles. Just absolutely incredible. These sled dog teams persevered through obscene conditions. Trained to withstand the cold through generations of hard experience, many of the hand-picked sled drivers were Alaskan natives, many of them with Athabascan heritage. The majority of the dogs were also Alaskan, Alaskan Malamutes, bred seemingly for this exact moment in history. And many of the drivers, in addition to being Alaskan natives, were proud U.S. postal workers who made this type of run, albeit usually not in such extreme pushes of endurance and speed uh, on a you know regular basis. While the relay plan was working perfectly, 
uh, if anything, ahead of schedule. Not all of the mushers were clued in on the latest details. The original formulation of the plan had fewer sled drivers covering longer routes. Gnome had arranged for a renowned sled driver, Leonard Seppala, to head out across the dangerous pack ice of the Bering Sea to meet the serum further up the trail and complete a leg back towards Nome. Seppala was a well-regarded musher and had won some races and was generally considered one of the best in the world. After he left Nome, the rapidly rising number of cases of diphtheria pressured the governor into adding more sled drivers to the relay to make it go faster, unbeknownst to Seppala. He was well on his way and unreachable at that point. After covering 170 miles over a few days, Seppala was getting ready to get to the roadhouse where he would get some rest, and wait for the serum to arrive so he could begin his trip back towards Nome. It's at this point, as he's still on the trail, mushing outwards from Nome, that he hears a shout. The serum! I have it over here! Looking off the trail, he spots Henry Ivanoff, who had just picked up the serum from another driver about a half mile ago, at a roadhouse near Shaktalik. Seppala goes, well... I guess we're doing this now, not getting any rest. We're just turning around and we're headed back towards Nome with this serum. Seppala readies himself to perform an about face. So he knows now, man, I'm going to have to head back towards Nome after just trucking 170 miles out this way. So Ivanov loads the serum onto Seppala's sled, and Seppala and his team of 20 Siberian Huskies, he had Huskies instead of Malamutes, uh, they set off in bitter cold darkness, it's night of course at this point, back towards Nome. Of course, a blizzard arises as they reach the part of their journey that takes them across the 20 miles of the featureless pack ice that makes up the Norton Sound, which is a kind of a bay off the Bering Sea. Too cold to bed down, and there's no means of finding shelter anywhere so they have to venture on. They're basically out on this just featureless plane of pack ice. Nothing as far as the eye can see. So you've got Seppala, who's probably the best sled dog driver in the world, with his hand-picked team of his absolute 20 best sled dogs, heading out onto the ice in the middle of the pitch black night in a blizzard. Seppala's lead dog is named Togo. Togo did not look the part of a sled dog. He only weighed in at about 45 to 50 pounds, and he had this just really kind of dirty, discolored appearance. He was not a dog whose appearance necessarily inspired confidence. Uh, as a puppy, he was sickly and would barely eat. He needed to be hand-fed by Seppala's wife, and he was so naughty and stubborn and seemed to have such poor prospects as a future sled dog that at six months old, Seppala wound up giving him away to a friend to have as a house pet. He was like, there's no way this dog's going to be a sled dog. Just take this naughty, mischievous little puppy and see if you can house train it and have it be your pet. Togo was having none of this, though. And Togo, actually, this is a true story, actually breaks through a plate glass window and treks miles back to Seppala's house because he just feels so much attraction, so much loyalty to Seppala and the other dogs in his pack. Seppala says, hey, if... We mean that much to you. You really feel like you're this much a part of the pack. We'll keep you. But this wasn't the end of Togo's behavioral problems. In fact, he continued to act out, jump fences, distract the other dogs in a way that drove Seppala absolutely crazy. 
One day, at his wit's end, Seppala takes Togo and snaps him into the harness attached to the sled with the other dogs just to keep him under control. Togo, like a, a switch flips, Togo instantly shows that he's found his calling. He logs 75 miles on his first run at only eight months of age, which is absolutely unheard of. And afterwards, he seems to be no worse for the wear. It's like this is his absolute calling. Over the coming years, he winds up working his way up to the position of being Seppala's most prized lead dog. Reflecting on his life at the age of 82, Seppala said that he had never had a dog better than Togo and that he is certainly the finest sled dog that the world had ever seen. The world, not just Seppala, but the world. So here we are. We've got this team of his 20 hand-picked dogs. We've got Seppala heading out into the dark, into a blizzard, onto the ice of Norton Sound, and Seppala becomes completely disoriented. Even in good weather, this pack ice is dangerous. You could have shifts in the wind that cause the pack ice to basically just, like, crumple into nothing and drop the team into the icy black water of the Bering Sea. Uh, or the winds can shift the other way and blow the pack ice out into the open ocean, and you could be completely stranded. So, very dangerous situation. Uh, Seppala had used this shortcut before, and he was very well aware of these dangers. On a previous occasion, he had actually been perilously close to plunging into an unseen crack in the ice, when Togo, who is lead-dogging for him at that point as well, senses the impending danger and slams on the brakes and keeps his team from plunging into the water. At this point, while they are dry, they're now stranded on this ice flow floating offshore, and they really just kind of have to bed down and be at the mercy of the wind. Uh, so they bob on this ice flow for hours until they kind of drift close to shore again, and at that point, Togo actually leaps into the water, crawls up on shore, and grabs a rope from the sled in his mouth and drags the ice flow and the sled closer to shore so that the team can get off. So this dog has like a sense for sledding that's beyond any sort of intuition that you could ever expect from a dog. It's like absolutely wild. So needless to say, Togo gives Seppala an extra little boost of confidence heading out into this venture on the pack ice in terrible conditions. Without any impediments to block the weather, the strong storms can just whip up absolutely crazy high winds, can blow snow that absolutely like sandblasts your face. Very few sled drivers felt comfortable crossing the pack ice at baseline, with most kind of going along the edge of the bay, which added many miles and a lot of time to the journey. Out on the ice, the world was blank darkness in every direction. To head anywhere other than precisely towards their next shelter on the other side of the bay would mean certain hypothermia and death for both Seppala, all 20 dogs, and all of the people of Nome who are relying on this serum. It's at this moment that Togo puts his nose to the ice and manages to navigate them exactly across this bay, exactly where they need to go. Uh, this was the same route that they had took on the way out, so it's been hypothesized that he probably is just following the scent of the team from when they headed out. But pitch black conditions, impossible to see where you're going. Togo manages to lead them all safely 20 full miles across this bay, from one side to the other, right up to the door of a sod hut that's on the other side where they can take shelter. It's at this hut that Seppala feeds his team rest them for a few hours to see if the storm's going to blow over, and then sets back out again at 2 a.m. 
At that point, the storm is still in full swing. So in order to move as quickly as possible, they continue to follow the shore on the pack ice for as far as possible before they cut back to land. And just as they cut back to land, the wind shifts and the pack ice completely breaks up. And if they would have been on the ice for another hour or so, it's very possible that they all would have plunged into the water and passed away. So absolutely get out of there in the nick of time. At that point, it's just eight more miles, and they finally reach their relief at the town of Golovin on February 1st. But Charlie Olson, another sled driver, picks up the serum, and Leonard Seppala tallies up the mileage and realizes that he and Togo, between heading out from Nome nonstop 170 miles, picking up the serum, turning right back around and heading back, Seppala, Togo, and the rest of the dogs have covered 260 miles in just four and a half days, including the absolute most dangerous part of the entire sled trip. At the time of this handoff, the serum is now just 78 miles from Nome. For the rest of the episodes in this series, please see nerdroamer.com or find Nerdroamer on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all your Nerdroamer-related updates and news, find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Nerdroamer.